I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 this morning. We want to continue along the lines of some things that we were teaching last uh, Sunday morning. Miracles in the Church, part 2. Acts chapter 1 tells us about um, uh, the disciples' last time with Jesus before he was caught back up to the Father. Now, I'll need to um, clarify that, I guess, a little bit. Excuse me. The Bible tells us uh, that the last night that Jesus was betrayed, or the last night Jesus was with the disciples at the Last Supper, Jesus gave the, uh, the disciples some specific instruction about what would happen because he's going to the Father. He said in John chapter 14, verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and even greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. He went forward, went a little further to say in the next few verses that those works would be done in his name. If you ask, call for, require, literally speak anything in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Then Jesus is betrayed, Jesus is crucified, and the disciples are, are a wreck. They, um, uh, they're not only afraid for their own lives because the, they don't know if the ones that uh, uh, crucified Jesus are coming for them next. Uh, the, the attitude of the people has, has shifted so quickly in just a week's time uh, from those that were singing Hosanna to Jesus on Palm Sunday to, to crucifying him less than a week later. And... Um, so the disciples are, are in complete disarray. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what to expect or whatever. But then Jesus is raised from the dead. John chapter 20 tells us Jesus appeared to them in the midst of the room where they were assembled for fear of the Jews. The Bible specifically says that they were behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. And Jesus appears to them and uh, breathes on them and said, Receive the Holy Ghost. Now, he said that in connection with the remission of sins. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now, we need to ask the question, did Jesus give the disciples the ability to pick and choose whose sins are forgiven and whose are not? Well, that can't be what he's saying. The Bible says Jesus died for the whole world. So the disciples don't have anything to do with picking and choosing whose sins are, are, well, we say forgiven. Casually, we say forgiven. Remitted literally means done away with. Forgiven means covered over. Remitted means done away with. Jesus died for the remission of your sins, not for the forgiveness of your sins. So forgive me if we use that word casually, but you know what I'm saying if I, I, uh, you know what I mean when I say it. So when Jesus said, receive you the Holy Ghost, whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. Whosoever sins you retain, they're retained. What he's saying is whosoever believes the words that you speak, the gospel that I'm sending you forth to preach, their sins are remitted. Whoever rejects it, their sins are retained. See, somebody has to answer for your sin. It's your choice. It can either be you or you can let Jesus do it. Uh, let me recommend Jesus as a better option. <laughs> So the disciples find Jesus, or Jesus finds them, I should say, breathes on them, says receive the Holy Ghost in connection with the remission of sins. Now, what happened when that took place? Well, in Luke chapter 4, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 24, the last few verses of the chapter, it says, beginning in verse 50, Luke chapter 24, verse 50, and he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and came up into heaven, carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem. Now notice the change in them. 
they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Now something changed with them. Where before they were huddled up behind closed doors for fear of the Jews, now they're out in the open where the Jews are. Something has happened. Something changed in them. And one of the things that it identifies is great joy. Well, it enjoy one of the fruit of the Spirit that the Bible identifies takes place after we're born again. These men are born again. There's a change in their life. If Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost, and they didn't get anything, then Jesus lied to them. He misled them. But they did get something. They were born again. They were born of the Spirit of God. Now, in that context, notice in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, after having been with them, the Bible says that he was with them 40 days. The difference in the time period is Jesus was crucified around Passover. uh, 50 days after Passover is the Feast of Pentecost. When Acts chapter 2 tells us the Holy Ghost was poured out. So you've got about 47 days in there that Jesus is, is popping in and out of their lives. Appearing, disappearing, walking through walls, showing up, eating dinner with them, disappearing again, stuff like that. It, those 47 days must have been an amazing time in the lives of the disciples. But one thing that they must have been assured of, and that is with Jesus popping in and out of their lives, never knowing... Well, that'd make you live right, wouldn't it? (laughs) Never know when Jesus is going to show up. One thing that they could be absolutely certain of is that he's alive. That all things are possible. Now, they're not doing anything yet. They've already been commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Jesus already told them that. But then he tells them in Acts chapter 1 in verse 8, he said, but wait in Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power on high. I'll read it from, uh, I'm, I'm quoting from, uh, from Luke chapter 24. Luke's the one that wrote his gospel, the gospel that bears his name, and also wrote the book of Acts. He said, but you shall receive power, Acts 1.8. Here's what Jesus told the disciples. These men that are already born again, these men that are already commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel, these men that have already been told that the, because they believe in him, the works that Jesus did, they'll do and even greater works. They've been told all of these things. They've got all of these promises. Then Jesus says, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and in the othermost part of the earth. In other words, You can't go into all the world and preach the gospel without the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You can't do the greater works that I did without the power of the Holy Ghost. The things that I've commissioned you to do, the things that you know that I want you to do, the things that I've identified as my will for you to do as a church, you need the power of the Holy Ghost to accomplish. Now, folks, here's the important thing for me, and I want you to get this. And forgive me if I belabor the point, but I, I really want to hammer this home. It's very important for us to see that you don't have to be filled with the Holy Ghost in order to be born again. It's very important for you to see that the disciples started off born again with the same commission that the church has today, which is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But Jesus said, you need the power of the Holy Ghost to do that. Now, where the modern-day church gets off thinking that we don't need the power of the Holy Ghost today to do the same work Jesus told them to do when he told them they needed the power of the Holy Ghost to do it is beyond me. Nowadays, the modern-day church says, well, we've got more than they've had. Give me a personal break. Are you serious? They had the power of the Holy Ghost. 
What can you possibly offer as a substitute for that? Seminary? What are we thinking? And I say we generously. I'm, I'm not one of the group that thinks like that. I trust you're not either. But what is the church thinking when it says stuff like that? When it makes that kind of claim? Notice that when the disciples are born again, they are born of the Spirit of God. And Jesus says, you need a second dose of the Holy Ghost to do the work. I've said this over and over again, and I, I, I'll continue to say it. I love the way John Osteen used to say this. He said, Jesus is saying to them, don't even think about having church without the power of the Holy Ghost. I love that. And it's absolutely true. It's accurate. Now, what do the disciples do? Well, it says that as the day of Pentecost approached, verse 14, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Now, let me ask you a question. What are they praying? It says they're in one accord. That means they're of one heart and one mind, one soul, one purpose. What are they praying? They continued in prayer and supplication. What are they praying? Folks, there's only a couple of things that they know. They don't know what the church is. They know they've been changed, but they don't even know how that works. They just know what happened to them. Based on their experience, if that's all they had, they know that they're supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But based on their own experience, if that's all they have is their own experience, they'd have to assume that Jesus is going to appear everywhere and get people saved just like they did. They don't know anything. They may remember back to where Jesus said, upon this rock, the knowledge that he's the son of God, will I build my church? But do they know what a church is? How would they know? These guys know nothing. Except that Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall you do, because I go into my Father. They know they've been commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel. They don't know what the gospel is. But they know they've been commissioned to go preach the gospel. And third, they know they've been told to wait in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. So to conclude that they're praying anything else other than that. Now, there may be other things that we could add to the list, but they're all going to be offshoots of those three things. That's all they know. You talk about a group of ignorant people. Where the things of God are concerned, God's got them right where he wants them. They don't know anything and they know they don't know anything. God doesn't have a problem with people that don't know anything. God has a problem with people that don't know anything and think they do know something. Those are the people that are hard to get to. And unfortunately, that's the majority of the people, it seems. So what are they doing? Well, they're continuing with one accord in prayer and supplication. They're waiting like Jesus said. Do they know what they're waiting for? We have no evidence to to make us think that they would. Well, Acts 2 comes around. Acts 2 takes place. Holy Ghost is poured out. When the day of Pentecost, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Notice that's the second time that it tells us about this group that they're in one accord. In other words, they're of one mind, one purpose. They're on the same page. They're all desiring the same thing. They're all pursuing the same thing. Folks, you cannot underestimate, or I'm sorry, you can't overestimate the importance of that in the church. Now, we, we read that casually and we think that's just filler. It's not. 
It's very, very important. And I'll show you how important it is as, far, as we go forward today. But please keep that in mind. These guys are pursuing the same thing. What is it? The only thing they know is the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. I would imagine that their prayers would be comical before the Holy Ghost is poured out. They don't know what they're, at, what they're looking for. You'll receive power if the Holy Ghost has come upon you. What is that going to look like? Is it going to be a dove that flies from heaven like it did on Jesus and landed on him? What are they looking for? They have no clue. No clue whatsoever. But they're still gathered together with one purpose. And suddenly, verse 2, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. I'd love to have seen that. They, they're looking. They're sitting in the house. They're looking at each other, and they see fire landing on each one of, the, each one of their heads or bodies or something. What would you think of the person you're looking at all of a sudden has got fire sitting on his head and he's looking at you and sees fire sitting on your head? Now, this, is, this has a, a significance to the Jews that we missed completely. Because in the Old Testament, the, the fire of God would come down from heaven and consume the sacrifice on the altar to show that God was, uh, uh, that approved of their sacrifice. Now it's showing these guys are the altar. They're the sacrifice. So this has significance for them. Somebody once asked me, well, why don't we have fire coming down on people when they're filled with the Holy Ghost now? Because it wouldn't mean anything to anybody if it happened. But there's great significance there. Great significance to them. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Please say all with me. Notice it doesn't say most. Doesn't say the lucky ones. Doesn't say the chosen ones. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. God doesn't leave anybody out. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So it tells us what the evidence of them being filled with the Holy Ghost was. Notice it does not say that cloven tongues of fire is the evidence. Notice it doesn't say the sound of a rushing mighty wind is the evidence. It says they were all filled and began to speak. Speaking is the evidence of being filled with the Holy Ghost. Why? Because you're judged by your words. You're blessed by your words. So God gives you words to say by the Holy Ghost. He gives you words to pray. I don't know how anybody prays without the Holy Ghost. I don't understand why people that have are filled with the Holy Ghost won't pray. I'm left with little choice but to conclude that they don't know the power of what they have. But remember, Jesus said, you shall, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So speaking with other tongues has got to be connected with the power. Got to be. Why did Jesus tell them to wait in Jerusalem until they received the, the power from on high? Because they need to speak the power in order for it to work. Jesus even said that the way that we do the greater works is the words that we speak. Whatever you call for or require in my, or demand in my name. How do you do that? Through words. 
He said, I will do whatever you speak. I will do whatever you say that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's the only stipulation or, or condition that he put on it, that the Father would be glorified in the Son. Notice he didn't say this so that you would be glorified and your fame would be great, but that the Father would be glorified in the Son. So he's talking about the right heart and the right attitude about things, right? So this spills out into the street. 120 of them are filled with the Holy Ghost. This spills out in the street and Peter preaches. Peter's preaching is very, very simple. He's got two main points. Number one, he says, this is that which was spoken by Joel the prophet. Verse 16. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, etc., etc." His second point is, Jesus was crucified. Jesus, who did miracles among you, was crucified. And God has made him the Christ and the risen Lord. That's it. I'm pretty well convinced that Peter is surprised when he hears the words coming out of his mouth. When he starts saying, this is that which was spoken by Joel the prophet, he's probably thinking, it is? What does Peter know about Joel the prophet? Nothing. He may have heard those verses repeated once or twice throughout his life, but that's not something that people are dwelling on. That's not a go-to scripture of the Old Testament. What does he know? He knows only what the Holy Ghost has given him to say. Now, I'm going to turn back to, to the book of Joel because what, what Peter says, this is what Joel said, is, very a small part, is a very small part of what Joel really said. I'm going to start in Joel chapter 2 in uh, verse 23. I'm going to read this in context. This is going to contain everything that Peter said that it was, which is in uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. But I want you to hear the whole thing. Joel chapter 2 beginning verse 23. Be glad then ye children of Zion. Zion is always identified in the uh, New Testament as the church. So the Old Testament references to Zion. Certainly there was a physical location of Zion. Mount Zion which is in the city of Jerusalem. Literally the temple mount. But it's always a reference to the New Testament church. Or has a spiritual application to the New Testament church. So it says be glad then ye children of Zion. And rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. What is that uh, a reference to? Let me stop and tell you about what the rain is about. You remember in the Old Testament when God said to Moses, uh, Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and I'll lead you to the promised land, and tell the people that it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and uh, so forth. One of the promises, or one of the... um, uh, the characteristics of this promised land is he said it's not a land that you'll have to water by foot now to understand the meaning of that they lived in egypt and the only source of irrigation was the nile river and so even back in the bible days ancient bible days they had created these treadmill type things that would pump the water from the nile river out to the to the farmlands that they needed in the deltas and so forth So they would have slaves, many times it would be the Jews, who would have to walk these treadmill things to pump the water. And so when it talks about watering it by foot, you'll you'll not have to water the promised land by foot. Instead, it'll be watered with the rains of heaven. He says, this is a land, the promised land is a land that is dependent on God for rain. It doesn't have a river, even though Jordan River is there. It's not something that you irrigate from the Jordan River. It's something that the, the, the harvest 
is completely dependent on God. Now, that has a spiritual application for the church. And that is God wants us in every part of our lives to be dependent on him and his help. How does God help you? By the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the agent whereby God works in the earth. So here where it says, I'll give you the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The first month is a reference to the time of the Passover. So it's talking about relative to the time of the Passover, which we know was the time that Jesus was crucified. He said, I'll give you the former and the the early and the latter rain. For what purpose? To produce crops. Now that has a natural application for Israel and has a spiritual application for us. So what is he talking about when he's talking about the rain? He's talking about the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 3 says, uh, well, let me read it to you real quick. I I want want to make sure they get the whole thing. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 3 says, Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come to us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. So even, even other scriptures tell us that God used the rain as a type of the Holy Ghost, the, the type of the Holy Ghost, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. So when Joel is talking about the rain, he's talking spiritually. Naturally, it has an application for them. He's saying God will help you produce crops by giving you the rain. Now, here again, let me ask something so you can see the character and the nature of God relative to the church. How, many, how often did God want crops to be produced for Israel's benefit? Every year. And his promise was, I'll give you the rain that you need so that you can plant the crops and so that you can harvest the crops. I'll give you the rain that you need. All you have to do is depend on me. I won't short you on rain. This is not rain in certain times, but not enough rain to really get the job done. See, so many times in the church world, I think what we do is we look back at times like the book of Acts. We look at the early days of the church and we say, well, that was just for then. Well, why was it just for then? Does God not want crops produced for us now? Was God generous back then, but he's stingy now? Why in the world would God not want the same thing today? What made us think, other than the the lies of the devil, what would make us think that God would be any different in his attitude toward providing for the children of Israel, which made the promised land, the land that flows with milk and honey, and not provide spiritually for us in the same or greater ways. God is not a stingy God. We see that from what he did in the book of Acts. So back to Joel chapter 2. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat, referencing harvest and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil and i will restore to you the years that the locust is eaten now i love this part he's saying in connection with the rain he said i'll give you back what was stolen from you by the enemy in other words now i know people go to extreme on this people take um verses out of context they take a verse in proverbs if a thief be found out he has to restore seven votes so a lot of people run around saying the devil has to give me back seven times what I, what he stole from me folks i don't know about you but i don't want anything from the devil one time or seven times worth i don't want anything from the devil there's nothing from the devil that could be good so that can't have a spiritual application to the church 
Why would God ever tell us in any circumstance to accept what the devil gives us? The devil's not my supply. Is he yours? I sure hope not. Well, why in the world are people running around saying, well, I'm looking for the devil to restore sevenfold. I'm not looking for the devil to restore anything. I'm looking for the devil to get out of my way. Now, am I missing something on that? Well, then what is it talking about here? What's Joel's prophecy? What's Joel's promise? Joel's promise is very simply this. God is saying, I'll make the good years so good, you'll forget about the bad years. I'll make the harvest so great, you'll forget about the time when through your own disobedience and your own lack of following me, depending on me, you didn't produce crops. I'll make the fat years so good, you forget the lean years. So I'll restore unto you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm and my great army, which I sent among you. That's one of those scriptures where it's translated in the, uh, the causative sense, which is in the permissive sense. Why did the locust come? Because they didn't depend on the Lord. They were disobedient to the Lord. Why did the caterpillar and the canker worm and all that stuff steal the crops? Because they didn't depend on the Lord. They didn't obey his word. Remember the rain. Remember the harvest is is. Uh, the harvest production is dependent on obedience and dependence on God. God never wants you to have enough to, so you don't have to trust him. Now, I don't know how much that is for you. See, some people could be a billionaire and still trust God every day. Some people couldn't have 50 bucks and stop trusting God or not stop trusting God. So he said, I'll restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army, which I sent or allowed among you. And you shall eat in plenty. Notice it provides for you. You shall eat in plenty. It's talking about provision. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be ashamed. Now, I want to read this verse of scripture again. Dealt wondrously with you. One translation says, one that I found, there may be others. But one translation says that worked miracles among you. And my people shall never be ashamed. My people shall never be ashamed. My people shall never be ashamed. The, that verse of scripture is quoted by Paul over in Romans chapter 10 when he's talking about salvation. In Romans chapter 10 verse... Verses 9 and 10, let me read in context. Paul said that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God is raising from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. That's a reference to Joel. So Joel is talking about something that Paul refers to relative to the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, meaning salvation and all the blessings of God. Paul goes on to say that the gospel is the power of God to a number of things, not just forgiveness of sins. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So he's talking about all of these things as a part of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And he's directed by the Holy Ghost to do so. Verse 27, back to Joel chapter 2. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I, the Lord, your, I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. 
Afterwards, talking about a period of time. It's not talking about after the early and latter rain. Afterward means last days. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Now Joel is speaking very plainly and specifically by the Holy Ghost about what the rain is. The rain is the outpouring of the spirit of God. Now what happens in Acts chapter 2? Let me back up a little bit and keep this in context. What happens in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Ghost is poured out. What are the disciples doing before the Holy Ghost is poured out? Praying for the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. In whatever form, whatever manner, whatever knowledge they have, they're continuing in one accord. They're on the same page about the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. They're continuing in prayer and supplication for the outpouring of the Holy Ghost so that they can do the work Jesus told them to do. That's the only thing they're waiting for. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord has said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So notice what Joel is prophesying. And and Peter picks up on this and says part of it too. Joel is prophesying a period of time for the work of the Holy Ghost. He calls it the last days. It begins with the day that the Holy Ghost is poured out. It continues to the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is the end of the tribulation period. That's the day of the working of the Holy Ghost. Now, that, does, that encompasses more than the, day, the, the, the church age or the age of the church. The age of the church is identified from the outpouring of the Holy Ghost to when Jesus comes back for us, which we believe is the beginning of the tribulation period. But the Holy Ghost will continue to work. Back to Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches, as I said, his two points, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and Jesus is the risen Lord and Savior, the one who did miracles and was crucified among them. So he gives them instructions. They asked, what should we do? When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They said, what do we do? Peter said in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, if you stop right there, he's saying, receive Jesus and become born again. And then he adds something to it. He said, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, some people might say, well, he's talking about being saved so that the Holy Ghost can, be, can recreate their spirits. Well, he sure says it in an awkward way. He says it in a way that was different from the way that it worked for them. They received the Holy Ghost to be born again. And then in a separate time, they were filled with the Holy Ghost or endued with power from on high. There are five times in the book of Acts that, the, that somebody is spoken of as receiving the Holy Ghost. This is the first with the disciples. They were first born again in John chapter 20. And then secondly, they were filled with the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2. The next time is over in Acts chapter 8, where Philip goes down to Samaria and preaches Christ. The Bible says the whole city received his preaching and were born again. Great joy filled the city. Then Peter and uh, John went down and, and prayed for people that would be filled with the Holy Ghost. And they were. 
The next time is Acts chapter 9, where Paul is met by Jesus on the road to Damascus. While he's talking to Jesus, blinded by the, the light that shines from heaven, the glory of the light, he calls Jesus Lord. Afterwards, when he goes into the city and he's still blinded, he spends three days blinded by the glory of the light, not by sickness or disease. God didn't make him sick. But he's blinded by the glory of the light. During that period of time, God appears in a vision to Ananias, a believer, a disciple named Ananias. And he calls Paul brother, which indicates that Ananias, through the information he received from the Lord, understood that Paul was saved. When Ananias goes and prays for him, he lays hands on him that he might receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit at a different time that he was saved. The next time is in Acts chapter 10, the only time that we have in Scripture where somebody was saved and filled with the Holy Ghost at the same time. And that was Cornelius in his household when the Holy Ghost fell on the Gentiles. First time, it really got, uh, first time the Lord had commissioned the church into the Gentile nation, the Gentile world. The Holy Ghost fell and they were uh, saved and filled with the Holy Ghost all at one time. Finally, the fifth time is over in Acts chapter 19 where Paul goes to the, uh, passes through the upper coast of Ephesus. He finds certain disciples at the, uh, at the riverside. He assumes they're born again and asks them about being filled with the Holy Ghost. They said, we've never heard of it. And they said, well, what are you baptized unto then? Well, you know, what's your salvation based on? He said, well, we were baptized in water by John according to John's baptism. And, and Paul says, oh, well, I thought you guys were saved. You haven't even heard about Jesus. So he told them about Jesus. It said they received Jesus, and then he laid hands on them to receive the Holy Ghost, and they were filled. So four of the five times in the book of Acts where somebody was filled with the Holy Ghost, it was at a separate time from when they were born again. What does that signify? It signifies that there are two works of the Holy Ghost. To be born again by the Spirit of God, which we call in the church world generally salvation. And then the second work of the Holy Ghost is to be endued or filled or baptized in the Spirit. One is for personal change, a change in spirit that creates what we know of as characteristics of spiritual development. Known as the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. The other act or action of the Holy Ghost, is to be filled to endue with power from on high. Now, Jesus did not say, wait till you get born again before you go out and have church. They're already born again. He didn't say, wait until you develop in love before you share your testimony with somebody. He said, wait till you receive power. Why? Because power is what makes us witnesses. Now, what is this power? The power is the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And that's what they were praying for. They understood enough to know that Jesus said, wait for it, so it must be important. I have no idea why the modern-day church relegates the baptism of the Holy Ghost to an unimportant issue. Some say, well, yeah, some are filled with the Holy Ghost. Some will speak with other tongues, but everybody doesn't have that gift, and, and so it must not be necessary for everybody. Okay, I guess it's only necessary for the ones God wants to have power. Well, what about the churches that are trying to have church and do the work of God without the power? Jesus said you needed the power to be witnesses. Okay, back to Acts chapter 3. 
Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm not finished with chapter 2 yet. Acts chapter 2, it says there were 3,000 people that got saved on the day of Pentecost. Notice verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. What does that mean? It means you see the love of God demonstrated among the church for one another. The characteristic of a spirit-filled life. A characteristic of caring about one another as much as they care for themselves. And then it says, And fear came upon every, uh, every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Then it tells us a little bit further how much they cared about each other. They started selling their stuff so that everybody was taken care of. You tell me that's not a change in life? Never done that before. Something has changed in these people. So they continue. They continue in unity. They continue in love for one another. They care about one another. They care about their brother as much as they care about themselves because everybody is in this new experience of being saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. And man, isn't life wonderful? Acts chapter 3 tells us about the man at the beautiful gate that was, ki- that was healed. I started to say killed. That would have been a mistake, wouldn't it? The man at the beautiful gate that was healed. The Holy Ghost comes on Peter and he preaches to the crowd and says, it's faith in the name of Jesus that made this man strong. 5,000 people get saved. Why? Because of a demonstration of power. Now, I want you to notice in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people got saved because of a demonstration of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, a sign. Now, the sign didn't do it. The preaching after the sign got him saved, got, told him about Jesus and got him saved. But you can't say that the sign was unimportant. Nobody would have listened to what Peter had to say without seeing the sign and hearing him say, this is what Joel prophesied. Same thing in Acts chapter 3. 5,000 people get saved. Why? Because of a sign, a display of power. So if we stop right here and examine or analyze what's going on, we'd have to say that Jesus knew what he was talking about. If you're going to be a witness in Jerusalem or Judea, Samaria, or in the uttermost part of the earth, you need the power of God to get the people's attention. Who knows? Jesus took a chance and just happened to be right. What would make us think that if God's plan was for the church to grow that way to begin with, that his plan for the church to grow would be in any other manner or method today? Would he not want the same power to cause the same results in the people? Well, if not, I'd sure would like somebody to explain to me why not. Well, that was just a sign to begin the church. In other words, God's gotten stingy with the rain. The promise to Israel was, if you'll obey me, if you'll depend on me, I'll give you the rain every year in the season when you need to plant it and the season you need it to harvest. But for you, Israel was my servants and I took care of them that way. But for you who are my children, no, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard sledding for you. No outpouring of the Holy Ghost for you. I want to make things as tough as I can. If that's the case, I'd like to go back to being a servant. Oh, but but see, you're ignoring, Pastor Mike, you're ignoring the, the real value of spirituality. No, you're ignoring the fact that the Bible says we have a better covenant established upon better promises. So then they get called. Peter and John get called before the council. Same ones who crucified Jesus. Then the Holy Ghost gives Peter the words to say, you men and brethren, you're the ones who crucified Jesus, but he's alive. 
We're witnesses of this. And we've done this great healing work in the name of Jesus. Man, the Jews huddle up and say, how'd these ignorant men get this kind of knowledge or ability? Well, that's a good question. How'd they get it? It's the power of the Holy Ghost. It's the outpouring of the Holy Ghost that has made this man strong. It's the outpouring of the Holy Ghost that enabled them to use the name of Jesus in the way Jesus intended for them to do when he told them they'd do the same works and greater works than he did because he's going to the Father. It's not the name of Jesus or the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. It's the outpouring of the Holy Ghost to use the name of Jesus. So they threatened them. They said, don't preach or teach anymore in this name. So what did they do? Well, verse 20, what is it? Verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own company and reported all the chief priests and elders had said unto them. Now stop right here because I want to take you to some other scriptures, some Old Testament scriptures that, that correspond to these things. We just saw that Joel's prophecy is for the outpouring of the rain, which is the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. The former and the latter rain, the early and the latter rain, whichever way you want to say it, is a, a, an Old Testament illustration of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. We know that Hosea 6.3 said that God would come to us as the rain. In other words, the rain is a, the type, the Old Testament illustration for the New Testament fulfillment for the church of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Now, what were we supposed to do or what were they supposed to do? What were we instructed from the Old Testament to do regarding the rain? Look at Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah chapter 10 tells you what to do regarding the rain. Verse 1, ask ye, everybody say ask. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Now, if the Holy Ghost is consistent, then we would have to understand or have to assume that the same example or illustration he uses for the rain in one book is the illustration he uses for the rain in the other book. As I said, for Israel, there were two applications. It had a natural application, meaning rain to produce crops or a harvest for them but for us a spiritual application for the outpouring of the holy ghost to produce the harvest that god wants for us to produce which is people being one into the kingdom of god that was the harvest that it produced for them in the book of acts right three thousand people on the day of pentecost five thousand people in acts three god didn't seem to have a problem with numbers so what is the instruction to the people of god from the Old Testament regarding the rain. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. That means for them, depend on God and ask for rain, literal rain, natural rain to produce the harvest that you need to survive because the land that flows with milk and honey is a land that's watered by the rains of heaven. Dependent on God. So ask you of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. For the church, the spiritual application is ask for the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Ask you of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. When do we know it's time for the latter rain? Well, Joel told us that. Joel told us that the time of the latter rain begins when the Holy Ghost is poured out. What we know of is Acts chapter 2. The time of the Holy Ghost will continue through the great and terrible day of the Lord. All the way through the church age and even through the tribulation period. So he says, ask for the Lord, ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. For us, the church, we're not going to be here after the church age ends. So for us, that would mean ask of the Lord rain during the church age. Ask for the outpouring of the Holy Ghost during the church age. Now, how many of you live in the church age? 
Well, if you didn't, raise your hand. You must be dead now because this is the church age. I want you to get the point, folks. I don't care if you raise your hand when I ask you questions. I don't want you to get the point, though. Ask of the Lord rain. Ask of the Lord for the outpouring of the Holy Ghost once he's been given. What's God going to do if we do that? Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds. Bright clouds is one of the most difficult translations in the scripture. It's not a wrong translation. It's not a bad translation. It just doesn't mean too much for many people. There are two things, two ways this word can be translated. It's translated, it's only used another, one other time in the scripture, and that's the book of Job. And it's translated lightnings. Lightnings. Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make lightnings. What does that mean? Well, lightning is a display of power. We certainly see that that fits according to Acts chapter 3. But bright clouds works too because bright clouds is a sign or a symbol or a description of the cloud of glory in the Old Testament that God always manifested his presence in. So when it says, ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds or lightnings, it means God will display his power and he'll manifest his presence. If we'll only ask. Now, what is the display of power and the manifested presence of God going to produce? So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain, give them outpourings of the Holy Ghost to every man or to produce for every person, everyone that's asking, grass in the field. What does that signify? Harvest. People. People. To signify the harvest of people being won into the kingdom of God. Is that not exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3? 3,000 people got saved on Acts, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost because of this, uh, the manifested presence of God, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost that manifested in speaking in other tongues, which it always does when people are filled. And just hearing the preaching of what this is, this is Joel's prophecy, this is beginning the church age, this is beginning the period, the dispensation of the Holy Ghost. And folks, that's what Joel's prophecy is. It's the announcing of the dispensation of the Holy Ghost. In other words, the announcing of the time that the Holy Ghost will work among the people of God. Never happened before. It's not even the way the disciples healed the sick when Jesus delegated power to them. This is the one unique time in the history of the world, the history of the universe, where the Holy Ghost is directed to manifest himself and to operate is in the church age. The one and only one time, only one period. That's what's so funny to me because you've got people in the church saying, well, the day of miracles is past. Are you kidding me? This is the time when the Holy Ghost is doing them. It's the only time that he's designated to do them. And the church is sitting around saying, it's not time anymore. Give me a break. But that's what happens when you, do, when you substitute Doctrine of men for the word of God. Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. So what's the instruction to the church? This only applies to the church. 
It applied to Israel naturally to ask for rain for the crops, but it only applies to the church in this regard, and that is the church is supposed to ask for the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. That's the only instruction we're given about the Holy Ghost. Ask for him to move. How much of the church world is doing that? I can show you a lot of the church world that's sitting around complaining, why isn't God moving? Maybe a better question is, why ain't you asking? Now back to Acts chapter 4. With that in mind, they were threatened and commanded not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, we don't know how many are there, but it's a group of people gathered together. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, One accord means same heart, same mind, same purpose. There is nobody leading this prayer in English or Greek or any other language. When it says they lifted up their voice, it means they're all praying. This has to, therefore, be the Holy Ghost interpretation for what they're praying in other tongues. Because they're all praying together. Here's what God hears them speak in other tongues. Lord, thou art God which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. And grant unto thy servants, not the apostles, the servants, meaning all the people in the church. Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by. In other words, here's what we want the boldness to be caused by. Now, folks, remember, and you judge this for yourself, but if there's nobody leading this prayer out and other people are just sitting idly by listening and saying amen at the end, if they're all praying this together in other tongues, please notice what the Holy Ghost is impressing upon them is giving them unction to pray about him. Grant unto thy servants boldness that may, they may speak thy word by stretching forth your hand to heal and the signs and wonders may be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ or thy holy child Jesus. If this is them praying in tongues, this is Holy Ghost giving them utterance, giving them a supernatural means of praying to ask that he would move. Now that brings me to another point. If he wants to move, why didn't he just move? Clearly he wants to move if he's impressing upon them to pray that he had moved. But if he wants to move, why didn't he just move? Because God is limited by our prayer life. You're the one that has authority here on the earth, not the Holy Ghost. And God's a gentleman. He won't force his way into something, even if it's for your benefit. That's why he gives you his word and instructions about what to do and how to operate. So that then he can do his perfect will in your life. But you have to want it. If God just did things for people because it was good for them, everybody would get saved on their own. Or by his work. But it's not. It's according to the will of man. Everything in your life is according to your will, not God's will. That's why it's so important for us to submit our will to his. So here's my question. Could we say with certainty that they are asking the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain? 
Anybody have a problem with that? Certainly they're doing what the Old Testament instructed them to do, whether they even know the scriptures there or not. They're prompted by the Holy Ghost to pray for the Holy Ghost to move or for the rain to be poured out. Here's the Holy Ghost saying, give us boldness, saying through them in their prayer, give us boldness by stretching forth your hand to heal and by doing signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. What happened? Well, Acts chapter 5. Well, I, I skipped over a minor detail. The place was shaken where they prayed together. They had an earthquake. I'm not sure, but I would assume that somebody would have accepted that as a sign. Chapter 5, verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest dared no man join themselves to them. That must have been what Ananias and Sapphira did in the beginning of the chapter. The rest dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord multitude, both of men and women. Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and a few of them were healed. And they were healed every one. Folks, notice what the rain does. The rain sweeps everybody in. Now, I skipped over some important verses in chapter 4. Notice it says in verse 32, And the multitude of them that believed were one heart and one soul. In other words, it shows their attitude toward one another. They're still of the same mind, the same purpose. They're still giving to one another. It talks about how they sold stuff and provided for each one and so forth. It shows a heart of love toward each other. That's a key point. Not to be overlooked. It's not just a matter of prayer. You've got to pray with the right heart toward one another. But notice what happens when the Holy Ghost is in control of the church. When the Holy Ghost is in control of the church, how do we know he's in control? Because the people are living and exemplifying spirit-filled lives. They're being controlled in their prayer life by the Holy Ghost. How do we know that? Because they're praying for what the Bible says to pray for, which is the outpouring of the Spirit. Furthermore, they care about each other. How do they care about each other? Well, they care about each other physically because they're trying to provide so that everybody has enough to eat. I wonder if their care for one another extends to any other direction or any other manner. I wonder if there's any sick in their midst that they care about those. Or are they just pigeonholing their concern for one another? Folks, they care about each other in every way that's possible. They're in a position, they're, they're, they're flowing down a river where they say everything is possible. Not anything is possible, everything is possible. All we have to do is stay in the right mind, stay hooked up together, care about one another, and do what the Bible says and pray for the Holy Ghost. Then when the Holy Ghost gives us something to say, we say it, and man, look, if people are even healed in the streets. Please notice, folks, this is what the latter rain looks like to God. I don't know what it looks like to you and me, but here's what it looks like to God. When the Holy Ghost is in control of the church and the church is praying and operating toward one another the way that they should, people are healed in the streets. Now, don't tell me that that day is past because it's still the day of the Holy Ghost. Turn with me over to Acts, uh, to, uh, 
James chapter 5. I started on this last week and I didn't finish it. I got to the, to the edge of it and didn't really make the point. Got sidetracked. But I want to make sure that I hammer home the point this morning. James chapter 5. We started last week looking at verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Is any, let him pray. Is any merry, let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. Now, again, we need to make a couple of points, and that is James is writing this to the Jews that are Jewish Christians that are scattered abroad. James is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. James, the book of James is one of the first, uh, first books that, uh, that historically that it tells us were written in, in first meaning the chronological order, time period. It's one of the first books that was written of the New Testament, first letters. It's after the persecution takes place to scatter the Jews out of Jerusalem, which the Bible tells us takes place pretty early in the book of Acts. And so James is writing to those that are scattered. Now, he fully well expects the people that are scattered to get other people saved and to have congregations of their own. Now, I don't know who's in charge of those congregations, and I can't imagine that James would know either. But James writes to the church and says, here's the way the church ought to operate. And that's the that's the... the the meaning behind, especially the fifth chapter of James. James talks about some other stuff, living the right kind of life and so forth. Not just claiming to be a Christian, but really living it out in your life. But he's talking about in chapter 5, particularly about here's how the church should operate. Is any afflicted? Let him pray. In other words, God will hear your prayers. You can pray yourself out of trouble. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? The implication is there shouldn't be. Or if there is, you can certainly do something about it. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them, the elders, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Can I ask you a question? How does James know whoever's in charge of the church, whoever the elders are, are anointed to do this? See, folks, here's how we read this. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And the elders will anoint him with all, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Why? Because the elders are supposed to have something. How in the world could James say, by the Holy Ghost, with certainty, this always works? What if you've got an ungodly elder? What if you've got an Ananias and Sapphira that have worked their way into the church, the early stages of a church that has been started through a, a, the, the scattered, uh, scattered Jews because of the persecution? Does he know everybody that's out there? Is there any way anybody could know everybody that's out there? How does he know that somebody's in the right spiritual frame of mind? How does he know that the elders, whoever the elders are going to be, are going to be anointed of God, equipped of God? How does he know who he's talking about? Well, we're out of time. I'll let you go. Is this making any sense? Have I broken loose any rusty gear for anybody yet? How does he know? Obviously, he's inspired by the Holy Ghost to say it. How does he know? Because it's not supposed to be about the anointing on the elders. Let's keep reading. Is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him, the sick, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Don't stop reading with verse 16. Confess your faults one to another. In other words, keep walking in love. 
stay in the unity of the Spirit. Have the same heart and the same mind toward one another that the church at Jerusalem did where we see in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, where they're praying for the move of the Holy Ghost and caring about one another. You know, part of their prayer, part of them being in one accord is that they're prevailing in prayer for the sick in their midst. So he says, confess your faults one to another. Follow the pattern that the book of Acts sets. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. Now, who does he mean you? Does he mean Jim Jones in the church? Jim, make sure you pray for other people so you can get healed. He's talking to everybody. He's saying when you pray for everybody, you get healed. Why? Because when you pray the way that the Holy Ghost tells you to pray, you're praying for an outpouring of the Holy Ghost, and that gets people healed in the streets. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, if it creates an outpouring of the Holy Ghost, I'd say that avails much. What kind of prayer are we supposed to pray? The same kind of prayer, the same kind of fervent, effective, effectual prayer that Elijah prayed. Verse 17, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three months, three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Son of a gun. The example he uses for praying for one another and praying for the sick is praying for the rain. Oh, Pastor Mike, you're just grabbing at straws now. You're just pulling stuff out of the air. Really? You're there in James chapter 5? Are you reading along with me? Back up to verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. Now, folks, that's one heck of a coincidence. That is one mighty strong coincidence for him to talk about the early and the latter rain, talk about praying for one another so that we all get healed, and then uses the example of Elijah praying for the rain. I made this statement. I think this is a point where I didn't finish last week. James chapter 5, verse... uh, what is it? Verse 14, where it says, um, oh, verse 15, I'm sorry. It says in the prayer of faith, the word prayer there is the word declaration. And the declaration of faith shall save the sick. The word save is the word heal. It's translated heal. It's the same word that's, uh, that Jesus said to the woman with issue of blood, daughter, your faith has made you whole. The statement or the declaration of faith shall save or heal the sick. How can James say by the Holy Ghost with absolute certainty? He didn't say the chances are good. He didn't use say the odds were in your favor. He used absolute certainty in speaking about the prayer or declaration of faith saving the sick. How can he know that it will work every time? Because it's clear that it doesn't work every time in the way that we're operating today in the church. See, I got to tell you something, folks. James chapter 5 has always bugged me. Because I saw right early on, not everybody has the same anointing when it comes to healing. And if we're depending on the anointing of the individual, then how could James by the Holy Ghost tell us, or I like to say it this way, why would the Holy Ghost tell us through James that it works every time? 
How can it possibly work every time? Well, the thing that makes it work every time is when the church is praying and prevailing in prayer for the sick. Not the anointing on the minister. The thing that makes it work is when we're praying for the rain. Because when the church is praying for the rain by the Holy Ghost, what that means is the whole church is praying the prayer of faith, a spirit-led prayer for the sick. Well, the Spirit of God is never going to impress you to pray anything except healing for the sick. So the church is praying the prayer of faith for the sick. The elders are just anointing with oil and declaring, be healed. Which is exactly the picture we have in the book of Acts when people were healed in the streets. Exact same picture. Exact same picture. It's, it's such a sad state in the modern day church, at least the American church. Such a sad, sad state of affairs. Because just as the unbelief of Nazareth kept Jesus from doing any mighty work, he was anointed with the Holy Ghost without measure. He had the power to do miracles, healing miracles, any and every healing miracle that was needed by anybody that was in the city of Nazareth. But he couldn't do any. And the Bible says that he marveled because of their unbelief. If unbelief kept Jesus from working, then unbelief will keep us from working today. And the fact is, the community unbelief that we see in one example in Jesus' ministry in Nazareth is the norm today in the modern-day church. So the healings that we get, and thank God for the work that's being done, but the healings we get are only in cases where either the Holy Ghost will do something on his own, and those are rare occasions, or we're able to break through the traditions of men to get somebody to see the truth through faith. That's why faith has become this mysterious hard thing because it's having to fight and struggle through community unbelief. And when I say community unbelief, I'm talking about 99% of all the churches in, in America. I don't care what you call them, faith churches, word churches, whatever, it's still the majority of the people are in unbelief in a general sense. And people are sitting back whining, well, why doesn't God do what he used to do? Well, why don't you believe something? Why don't you pray for the Holy Ghost to move? I'm too busy. I don't want to pray for the Holy Ghost to move. I want to come see the show. Seems to me, Pastor Mike, if you had anything, you'd be doing something. Well, you know what I've got now, don't you? I've got nothing that can, can overcome community unbelief, just like Jesus. Seems like if Jesus had something, he'd have done something work in Nazareth. Folks, it's not about what the individual has. It's about what the church is doing. Now think about what somebody has to do today. Somebody's diagnosed with some sickness or disease. In most cases, they have to find, struggle to find somebody that believes in healing. They've got to search out what church believes in healing. Mine certainly doesn't. No point in me asking my pastor to pray. If he does pray, he'll pray, Lord, if it be your will, heal my sister. Which implies if it's not, just let her die. Many times they have to struggle through their family's idea about sickness and disease. It's a very rare thing for somebody to have easy and instant access to people that believe God for healing and people that won't oppose it. Now think about what that means in the modern day church. The modern day church as a whole the majority of the modern day church are preaching and opposing, preaching against and opposing the very thing that the early church prayed for. 
And the modern day church says, well, see, we don't get the same results they did. And that proves it's not God's will in the same way. No, it doesn't. It means the early, the, uh, the modern day church is full of unbelief. That's what it means. It means the modern day church won't do what the Bible says to do, which is pray for the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Now, I'm going to hit home with this, and I want to leave you, I want to leave you with the most important point. Because we could, we, I mean, there's any, place, any number of places we could go with this. We could rail on the other churches, and we could rail on denominations. We could leave feeling good about ourselves, puffed up, and say, well, we believe in healing. I don't know why they don't. <laughs> and who does that help? Nobody. So let's do some good with this. So I've got a couple of questions to ask you. These are rhetorical questions. Please don't answer. Do you care enough about the other people in the church's healing as you care about your own? Easy to answer that. If you were sick, what would you be doing about it? Are you doing the same thing about other people that are fighting sickness? What would you want other people to do if you were the one that was diagnosed as sick? Wouldn't you want other people pulling for you and praying for you? Well, what do you think they want? They want you praying for them too. I think it's a... Uh, well, let's, let's, let me stay calm about this. I think it's a shame that there are people that are sick in our church, fighting sickness, standing against sickness, little or big, doesn't matter, great or small, as far as the sickness is concerned, that don't have people that are coming to them, finding out, what's your situation? What are you believing for? Let me pray for you. Now, I don't mean lay hands on you, try to minister to you. I mean getting information about them so that they can pray on their own. When I pray for the move of the Holy Ghost, I want to make sure that I call your name in prayer. It's a shame that the church doesn't operate that way. Do you get the feeling that that was the way it was in the book of Acts when the Holy Ghost was moving? No, the Bible keeps telling us that everybody had everything in common. I'm not even asking you to give people money. I'm asking you to give them of yourself. I'm asking you to care as much. I know it's a big ask. I get it. But I'm asking you to care as much about them and their physical condition as you would your own. See, I'm convinced, folks, that that's the thing that's going to bring about the move of the Holy Ghost. It's not going to be better preaching that does it. I preach well enough for the Holy Ghost to be doing all kinds of stuff. It's going to be the church starting to pray. It's going to be the church caring about one another. It's going to be us praying for each other. Confess your faults one to another. It means walking in love toward each other. You got something against somebody? Clear it up. Yeah, but they did me wrong. Is it really worth somebody's healing? Sometimes you have to forgive and say they're an idiot. Lord, it's not my fault they're an idiot, but I forgive them. And move on. Now, somebody might think, oh, Pastor Mike, that's not love. Well, it can be. Because sometimes people are idiots. There was once when I was an idiot. I've been cured of that. <laughs> but whatever it is that's causing the problem, fix the doggone problem. 
Why? So that we can pray in one accord. Now, folks, I'm not asking you to pray an hour a day. I'm not asking you to pray an hour for each sick person. I'm not asking you to do anything except pray for the move of the Holy Ghost. Set time, make sure that at least sometime in every day, you're asking God to move by the Spirit of the Lord. Start off something simple like this. Say, Lord, your word says that we're supposed to ask you for the rain in the time of the latter rain. So I ask you to move by the Holy Ghost. That's as far as I know. Now, Holy Ghost, you help me to pray in other tongues. And then do. Short or long, doesn't matter. I'll tell you this, the more you give yourself to it, the more it'll come to you. But see that you do something about it. You have a responsibility. Have you ever noticed? I really don't have time for this. Maybe I'll talk about this next Sunday morning. But have you ever noticed that when Paul talks to the church at Corinth about the uh, the, uh, manifestation of the Holy Ghost? In other words, how the Holy Ghost manifests himself in this dispensation where he works. Have you ever noticed that part of the chapter, the biggest part of chapter 12, is about how the body works together? You ever notice that? What in the world is Paul talking about the church being a, uh, members one of another like a body works together? What's he talking about that for when he starts off talking about things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost? Because if we don't pray for another, one another, if we don't care enough about each other to pray that God would help us in our midst, how in the world are we ever going to get God to do something for us? You ought to have, every person in the church ought to have a handful of people that they know in the church that are standing against sickness and disease. And beyond that, say, Lord, I know to pray for these and there may be others that I don't know about and I want to include them in this too. Prayer is not a hard thing, folks. It's not an all-day affair. Doesn't have to be at least. When it turns out to be that, man, it's a wonderful thing. It's not something to run away from. It's something to run to. But how in the world are we going to see the Holy Ghost move? All right, here's a question I want you to answer. How many of you want to see the Holy Ghost move? If if you want it, but you're not willing to pray for it, you're doing a disservice to the others of us that want it and will pray. You're dead weight. And we've got enough unbelief to pull against as it is. We don't need to add you to the load. Now, forgive me if that seems harsh, but I hope it gets the point across. You have a responsibility. Every part of the body has a responsibility to work together. Part of the body doesn't take time off and say, I'm quitting for the day. The body works together so that it all functions perfectly. That's the picture that God gave Paul to use for how we're supposed to work together too. Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. No conditions. Ask, and he'll give the rain. He'll make bright clouds. He'll display his power. He'll manifest his presence, and he'll give showers of rain so that it produces grass in the field. Folks, I don't make a... How do I say this? I've never been an evangelistic type. We've gotten a lot of people saved through the church over the years. But I don't come to church every Sunday morning expecting that there are unsaved people in in the congregation. uh, The type of ministry that I've gotten that God has given me is not the type that really draws a lot of unsaved people. I realize that. There's no point in trying to get saved people saved again. 
I know who I am. I know what God's given me. I know the purpose of it. But you start letting the Holy Ghost move. And it'll draw people into the kingdom of God like crazy. And I've been praying for that for 30 years. I've been praying for the rain for 30 years. 30, well, no, it's 19, well, what's it, 1981. How long is that? 34 years almost. Now, granted, when I started praying for the rain, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just imitating and mimicking Brother Hagin. He was praying for the rain. I started praying for the rain, and all of a sudden, the iron curtain fell. That got my attention and caused because that's what we, exactly what we were praying for. We were praying for the precious fruit of the earth. We were praying for the people behind the iron curtain. All of a sudden, son of a gun, that thing fell. We're all looking at each other saying, wow, this prayer stuff kind of works. It changed nations without any shots being fired. It opened the door to the gospel without any shot being fired, without any violence, well, virtually no violence whatsoever. There was a couple of isolated cases, but if you remember back then, it was just the whole world was sitting there with their mouths open because it fell almost overnight. Well, we live in a different day. But God's purposes are the same. God's purposes are for the precious fruit of the earth. Jesus has long patience for it, the precious fruit of the earth, until he received the early and the latter rain. There's only one thing that's going to bring about the precious fruit of the earth, which is the end time events that Jesus is going to come back to, to get us for. And that's the early and the latter rain, the move of the Holy Ghost. And that can't happen unless we pray. Well, what are we waiting for? If prayer is necessary for it to happen, what are we waiting for? I had an idea that when we started healing school, there'd be people coming from other churches, and, and because they're coming from other churches, hadn't heard the word, that we'd have a lot of results in healing from outside the church. And I found out that, the, that that doesn't work the way that I thought that it would because so many of the people, most of the people that are coming from other churches are so firmly soaked in unbelief that they won't stay with it long enough to break through. And so I'm, I'm uh, you know, not anymore. I understand how it works. But in, uh, in the early days of the healing school, I started saying, well, Lord, I don't understand this. And the Lord showed me. If I had an evangelistic type of ministry where healing was concerned, then I'd be able to break through because that would be my anointing. But my anointing is not that. My anointing is to teach. Little by little, line upon line, precept upon precept. Here a little, there a little. Everywhere a little, little. <laughs> but most people won't stick with it long enough to break through. So they come and they go. They come, they have hands laid on them. They go and they don't get anything. They say, well, I guess that doesn't work. And so it just reinforces the unbelief that they came to start with. We've got to have something to overcome that. Well, how are we going to overcome that? Well, it's going to take one of two things. It's going to take either somebody with a magnificent evangelistic healing anointing. Or it's going to take the church praying for the move of God. Now, if it's the one with the great anointing, I don't really think that's going to help much. Because that'll just reinforce in the people that it's all about people with great anointings. It's not about the Holy Ghost moving in the earth. It's not about the Holy Ghost moving through the church. It's all about people that have special anointings. So let's give a big whopping offering to them. That's not what the church is supposed to be about, folks. The church is supposed to be about people caring for one another, 
by prevailing in prayer for the sick. Praying for the move of the Holy Ghost and prevailing in prayer for the sick. Just like they prayed in Acts chapter 4. Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders would be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's going to take. And that's the only thing that's going to get it done. And I believe with all of my heart that it's going to happen. I believe we're going to have people healed in the streets too. I believe we're going to have miracles of healings that draw people in like nothing they've ever seen or heard before. And not because of us, not because we're so great, not even because we're, we're great in prayer. Because it's time. Because the end is coming. The time is short. And there is a great work to be done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Forgive us, Father, for only caring about ourselves. We commit to you, Father, two things that we will pray every day for the move of the Holy Ghost. You said to ask of you rain in the time of the latter rain, and that's exactly what we'll do. Holy Ghost, we're going to need your help because for many in this congregation, that's new territory. We'll just simply do what the Word says. We won't make a big show of it. We'll just do what you said. We'll ask you to move by the Spirit of God to heal the sick, to do signs and wonders, and then we'll trust you to give us utterance in the Spirit. Second thing we'll do, Father, is we will prevail in prayer for those that we know in our church that are sick. We commit to you that we will go out and find those that are sick in our midst. We'll find their name, whatever we need to know about their situation so that we can pray effectively. And we won't turn loose of these people in prayer until we prevail, until they're healed. Father, we know we're asking for a big thing and it's something the devil might make some think or might make some afraid of doing. But Lord, we're not trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in you. We love you, Lord. We see from the word the greatness of the power you've entrusted to us by making us new creatures in Christ Jesus and then also by enduing us with power from on high. Thank you, Father, that each and every person in this room has the same miracle-working power residing in them that Jesus used to raise the dead. There's no shortage of power. We just haven't tapped into it. But we choose to do that from this point forward. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. Amen.